Welcome to the Oil and Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast with Sarah Stogner, where each weekly episode touches on legal and risk management issues impacting the energy sector. Visit our website at www.oilandgaslegalrisk.com for more information on today's episode, past episodes, and upcoming OGGN events. Today's episode is sponsored by ThoughtTrace, developers of Alley, an artificial intelligence platform that reads and understands energy agreements and contracts to quickly find critical data. Hey, everybody. This is Sarah Stogner with the Oil & Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast. Joining me today is Hale Stewart, who is in Houston, and I'm actually in Midland today, so we are using Zencaster. so hopefully y'all can hear us okay. So thanks for joining me, Hale. I am very glad to be here, and by the way, good use of the word y'all. <laughs> Years in the South, right? Exactly. So I guess we got connected on LinkedIn, right? Yep. Correct. And you are a captive guy. You yep. kind of give, give the folks your background. Sure. I'm an attorney. I'm a fifth generation attorney, which means that there's a family reunion deep in the pits of hell when I die. <laughs> I was introduced to captive insurance in graduate school. I read a case called, it was the UPS case, which was then one of the last cases in, in the captive timeline. And before I was a lawyer, I was a bond broker. And in that job, I dealt with insurance companies, but from the investment side. So I read the UPS case and I put two and two together and realized that a parent company could put together an insurance subsidiary. I am like 0.0005% of the population that would become excited by this prospect, but I did. And one thing led to another. I've written a book called U.S. Captive Insurance Law, which is it's still one of the leading texts in the area. Another book called Captive Insurance in Plain English, which is really more for the layperson who wants to get an initial read on the topic. Yeah, and, and we'll make sure for folks that are listening, we'll have that information on where they can find those books in sure. the show notes section. So, and as long with all your contact info. So, you and I have been throwing out this word captive, but you know, for those that aren't in our industry, will you give them a big picture view of, of really exactly what captive insurance is? A captive insurance company is an insurance company that's owned by the parent company. So for example, let's suppose we have Acme a Refinery located on the Texas coast. Acme Refinery would open and then operate Acme Insurance. Acme Insurance would sell insurance to, to Acme Refinery, but that's the only client that Acme Insurance would have. It would only sell insurance to the parent company. And so what's the kind of what's the benefit of captive insurance? There are a lot of really big benefits. I tell you, and I'm going to focus this conversation a bit more on the oil and gas industry because that's who's listening. Number one. Because you know, I mean, you know, I nerd out about this and I'm really excited about the possibilities for, for some of my oil and gas clients. Oh, yeah. Well, for, for oil and gas, it makes perfect sense. Number one, okay, with oil and gas, you have an industry that A, is high risk, but B, probably has problems with insurance coverage for a number of different reasons. The biggest one is going to be the fact that you know they're going to file a lot of claims. So as a result, premiums go up, the number of carriers providing coverage declines. So at some point, you're forced to do this because market forces – take away third-party insurance. Okay, so that's the first thing there. 
you and I have talked about this, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later in the conversation, but the ability to write custom insurance policies. The insurance industry in the U.S. operates on boilerplate forms. The most common ones are from ISO, Insurance Services Office. The problem with these forms is that they have to be submitted to and approved by all the states. So the drafting has to be very, very broad. Right. It's just kind of generic a lot of times. Yeah. Any lawyer would tell you, give me a broad policy. I'll drive a truck through it. I'll give you an example. Property damage. The commercial liability policy and then any other policy that insures for property damage defines that term in the same way. One of the most litigated terms in the CGL universe is the phrase property damage. Now, you would think to yourself, well, it's property damage. It's an adjective and a noun. This really can't get too complicated, but actually it does. Yeah, leave it to us, Yeah, right? the policy is, is broadly drafted. You know, maybe the carrier issuing the policy throws in a couple of, of you know, additions to the policy that screw everything up. I mean, it's a big problem. So anyway, the ability to draft your own policies takes that problem away entirely, okay? Hard to cover risks. Oil and gas, you've got some really difficult risks to underwrite. Pollution liability slash environmental. That, that can be hard to underwrite and very pricey. So why not do it yourself? So anyway, those are just- Right, to where your actual operation- Oh, exactly. You know, plus most oil and gas companies have a risk management culture already in place because they have to. So they can take their risk management culture and department, lock it in to their captive and combine the two so that the risk management people can actively engage in, in, in policies and procedures that lower the cost of the risk. And eventually this, this pays off in lower premiums, maybe some higher dividends coming from the captive and, and a good year to the parent company. Right. So you also have an LLM in tax, right? In domestic and international. Correct. Yep. Right. And so can you kind of tell them a big picture overview of the benefits, like from a tax perspective of a captive versus paying premiums to a third party? Okay. Let me answer that in a couple of different ways. Number one, there are some companies that rather than insuring risk, will account for it with what's called a reserve or contingency. This is simply an accounting mechanism where the, the finance department says, we know that there's a payment out there on the horizon somewhere. And we're going to put a marker on our financial statements and try and come up with a, a best guess calculation. Okay, The problem is that if you're reserving for a contingency, that's not deductible. So it's not very efficient. So by, by turning that particular risk into a, a deduction, because remember, insurance is deductible under 162 of the code. It's an ordinary necessary business expense. Okay, You make it that much more efficient. For some companies, they can make what's called the 831B election. This is a statute. Okay, in the tax code, 801 up to about 860 is the insurance the insurance company section of the tax code. 831B is obviously within those those statutes, and basically says that an insurance company that now has less than about 2.3 million dollars in premium can file an election to be taxed on its investment income rather than its gross income. Think about this. As, okay. Congress routinely uses the tax code as a way of, of engineering the economy. No. <laughs> I know, shocked and new, right? But the reason why they did this was to encourage the formation of insurance companies. So for a smaller company that's looking to do, the, to do this, with a smaller amount of revenue, there may be that, that tax angle. Right. So basically, they're able to 
write off the premiums that they're paying themselves and then invest that money. And part of that revenue that comes from the investment is not taxed. Is that an okay summary? In general, yeah. I mean, typically a smaller captive is going to have a lower tax burden than, than another company. But even if you've got a company where you're writing above the 831B premium amount, which is roughly about $2.3 million right now, the benefits are still huge because you're still deducting the premiums for insurance. And, you're, and once you put together a captive program, it's a tacit admission that I'm going to take more control of my risk. And the purpose of that ultimately is to lower its cost and thereby increase the company's savings. Right. Now, there are some limits to what kind of insurance you can actually place, right? So in other words, if I'm never traveling out of the country, I can't have my captive provide me foreign country kidnapping. (laughs) No, that, that, that would be a bad idea. The IRS does not like what it considers to be implausible risks, and that's that's a classic example right there. Now, by the way, in, in the oil and gas area, if you're doing business in Nigeria, kidnapping and ransom is is a reasonable policy to have because you know because that unfortunately happens in that part of the world. A good rule of thumb is that if an ordinary risk that would be associated with the business that that, that you would chalk up to the market economy, you typically can't insure that. Uh, for example, I lose my profits. Well, sorry, dude, that's just the way the economy works. But you should also note that sometimes risks become more plausible as time goes on. For example, 40 years ago, the idea of supply chain disruption was a very ephemeral risk. And yet nowadays, thanks to the global supply chain, it's a key risk for a lot of people. And again, in oil and gas, that would, that would potentially be something you want to deal with. Yeah, yeah. No, I hadn't thought about that, but Absolutely. So is this an active area of litigation? I mean, are there new tax, you know, are there new captive yes. cases coming okay. out? Is this the tax law changing? So can you kind of tell people? We can that? divide the captive world into three subparts, okay? Single parent captives, group captives, and then, then what I call micro captives, okay? The first two are typically fine. That is a single parent company and a group captive. There is a lot of litigation right now in the micro-captive area. This typically involves smaller parent companies. Companies are making 2 to $5, 2 $7 million in gross revenue. And they're achieving what's called risk distribution through what are called risk pools. Okay, fancy terminology here. Oh, no, we see these all the time, right? With like property exactly. insurance, okay. for example. So tell people what that means. There have been several losses in the tax court for taxpayers in these cases. There have been a couple of really important takeaways. And by the way, I'm, I'm a, in case you didn't figure this out, I just jumped into the deep weeds of tax law. So follow me in here. I'll, I'll make it all okay. Within tax law, there are a series of judicial doctrines called anti-avoidance law. These are the rules, regulations, court-created doctrines that the IRS and the courts will use to, to attack what they believe to be tax shelters, Okay. Tax shelters have all the, uh, all the signs and outward trappings of a legitimate transaction, but aren't. The three taxpayer losses have a number of facts in the fact pattern that just smack of anti-voidance law problems. What that basically means is that these transactions were not put together to manage risk, but to deduct taxes. Okay, So 
before you look at the idea of putting a captive together, something that you should always check is, is what are your what is your motivation? Good rule of thumb here. There's a, an anti-avoidance law concept called the business judgment rule. It looks at the taxpayer's subjective intent on entering a transaction. So it's important to have a good set of facts to explain why you perform this transaction, why you entered into it. Now, again, let me circle back to oil and gas because that's our topic today. Do you have a company that has a lot of claims and just wants to put more, more of the risk on the books? Do you have a company that's filed a claim and had it denied? Do you have a company that's been litigating with its insurance company over coverage? Those are great reasons to form a captive because in forming captives, you avoid those problems. Now, the two other areas of captives, group captives and single parent captives, there's a lot less activity. The reason why is that another big difference, by the way, is that in those areas, you're almost always going to have a lot more claims running through the captive. And remember, insurance is a number of different things, one of which is that an insurance company pays claims. Okay, so if you've got an insurance company, well, they're supposed to exactly. Now, let's let's suppose you have a pool of captives where you've got like a hundred captives linked by a pool, but the pool hasn't paid any claims. I would call that a problem, and that, which is you know, that's popped up in the in the case law. It's important for the captive to always to, again to pay claims because that's that's part and parcel of what insurance companies do. Right. So, can you kind of for listeners that have listened to me for a while, I, we, we talk generally about the claims process, right? And so you you ha- something bad happens, you file a notice of an incident. Maybe you don't know if you're going to make a claim or not, but you go ahead and give timely notice to make sure that you don't have any time delays and all that. And then you file what's called a proof of loss, which is usually a sworn affidavit saying this is the amount of my loss and this is what I'm seeking under the policy. And then there's an adjuster who comes out and tries to understand exactly the, how the loss happened and and then takes it back to the insurance company. And then they have someone who looks towards the coverage issues, Correct. right? And says, this is covered, this isn't covered. And then maybe there's a lawyer involved along the way. Is it the same for captives? So in other words, if, if a comp- somebody's listening to this and they say, well, you know, maybe I could do a captive. We've got $100 million in revenue and you know, maybe this is a viable option, but I don't want to employ a claims professional and an underwriter and, and, and an actuary. So how does that process work for a company that's maybe interested in forming a captive? Okay. You can always outsource the claims function. You can hire a third-party claims person, have them walk you through the process. Let me ask that question a couple of different ways, Okay. When you're putting together the captive, the vast majority of the actual professional services are going to be outsourced. And that's something you want, by the way. You want an independent third-party actuary to determine premiums and reserve amounts. You want an independent accounting firm to do the audit. And the reason why, obviously, is independent means that if there's a problem, they're they're going to say there's a problem here. Back to the claims process. Most oil and gas is an industry where because there's a lot more risk, they're much more likely to have risk professionals either A, employed at the company, or B, that they're going to have you know, a, a number of key people we call to. You know, we call John Smith when we have this problem, that, that type of thing. In the captive world, what I would do with that company is say, okay, A, do you have internal claims, or B, who do you call? The chances are I know the person you've called because I've been in the industry for a while, in which case we'll sit down and, and we'll just kind of walk through the whole process. But from the company's perspective, you're going to go through the exact same thing, the exact same process, except, and here's here's the big kicker, 
you control the insurance company. Okay. So what you need to make sure is that valid claim, you need to document it correctly, et cetera, jump through all the hoops you should normally go through. But because you control the insurance company, the chances are a lot higher that you're going to get the claim paid. And more importantly, there's not going to be a problem getting the, the, the claim paid. Who doesn't want that? Right, exactly. Okay, they're like, okay, well, if it's not going to substantially change my claims process and that procedure, what's it going to be like the first time creating it? And then what's it going to be like every year at renewal? How is it going to be different? Okay, a couple points here. Number one, the parent company now has a new set of corporate responsibilities. So they have a subsidiary, it's an insurance subsidiary, and there's certain things they have to do. Review documents, they've got to talk with actuaries, they've got to talk with auditors. They'll also have to interact with state insurance regulators because the captive will be formed in a, in a, in a U.S. jurisdiction. And the state regulators are going to want to talk to the parent company. When you form it, the almost the entire formation process is out, outsourced, but it's an interactive process. So let's go back to Acme Refinery along the Texas coast. They say, hey, great. We want to look at a. We want to put together a captive insurance company. Well, the first thing that we're going to do is look at their current insurance policies. We're going to look at their current losses, and I'm going to look at a deep look at claims that they've paid or risks that they've paid for that they're not insured for. We're going to take all that information, send it off the actuary, and then there's going to be like a three or four way series of emails and phone calls. Parent company, actuary, myself, and, and probably you in this process. Okay. And the idea here is that we're going to start to design your, your overall insurance program. And again, we'll start with your current coverage. We'll look at your current industry. But then we're going to start to ask you questions like, okay, what would you really like to get coverage for? You know, And a favorite question I have here of any business owner is, what keeps you up at night? What events, if they happen, scare the holy living you-know-what out of you? Okay. Because that's something that we probably can insure for. And by the way, I have yet to meet a CEO or an entrepreneur that doesn't have the nightmare scenario in their head. And they realize that, look, if this happens, you know, I can maybe do some cash, you know, some cash flow engineering, but I'm, I'm bankrupt in 12, 18 months. They, and they know it, okay? Those are things we can probably insure against. We, all that gets wrapped up into what's called a feasibility study. The feasibility study is a combination. It's, a, it's an analysis of, of the reasons for forming the captive, proposed policies, actuarial analysis of premiums, et cetera. And we present that to the parent company. We say, okay, this is what your captive is going to look like. Here's the premiums you're going to pay. Here are the policies you're going to write. Here's what it's going to cost you to do, et cetera. And then, the, then, then the, by, that, by that point, the parent company is you know, on board, and we, and we typically get a thumbs up. At that point, we go into op- formation and then operations. Operations, typically the parent company will outsource most of the function to what's called a captive manager. Think of a captive manager like a, a quarterback of a program. He coordinates all the activities, interacts with the parent company. A lot of what a captive manager does is to make sure that reports are filed with the right people in the right way at the right time. In, in this case, there's going to be a lot of coordination between the parent company and claims with the captive. And at that point, the C-suite of the parent company is probably going to be on the C-suite of the captive, at least in some capacity. And like I said, from their perspective, they just have another set of corporate functions that they've got to comply with. So they have to be willing to be on a board of directors and a president and a treasurer and CEO of another company. 
They also need to become familiar with insurance operations. Again, in the oil and gas industry, it's the chances are kind of high that there's somebody at the company that knows how insurance works and has been doing it on a regular basis. So that's probably the, the guy that's going to wind up doing this anyway. And I would imagine you can still have external folks on the board of directors too that maybe have some more experience and interest in it, right? Exactly right. Okay. So basically at that point, somebody in the parent company gets to realize their lifelong dream of finally becoming an executive at an insurance company. Right. Well, I can say probably no one, but I'm just saying it's funny. I keep keep thinking that's going to be a funny joke somewhere and no one really gets it, you know? Well, they're they're just like that. That just, (laughs) right. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So we've only got a couple more minutes for this episode. So can you kind of, is it fair to give people, I mean, I know there's no one size fits all, but kind of what do they need to have business wise? Okay in premiums for it to be financially feasible or beneficial? I look for companies that have gross revenue of at least $10 million. Okay. Obviously the bigger, the better. I look for companies that either a have a risk culture built into their corporate culture or B are willing to adopt it. A good precursor event helps. And a good precursor event means that, for example, you filed a claim and it was denied. You filed a claim and you thought it was $100,000 and you wind up settling for twenty five. dollars You've had a hard time getting coverage. You had a loss four or five years ago that spiked your premiums. You took the necessary steps to lower the cost of your premiums, but they're not coming down. You know, Because like gas prices, premiums are quick to go up and almost never to come down, right? Is there a coverage that, that you want, but you just can't find? These are all really good fact patterns to form a captive insurance company. And overall, you've got to have a company that's committed to lowering the cost of their risk. Because ideally, what a captive signifies is this realization that, oh my God, we have this thing called risk, okay? Because up until people form a captive, typically they have what I call the perfunctory insurance purchase, No one wants to buy insurance, but they know it's a smart thing, so they buy it, and then they ignore the policy until they renew or they file a claim, okay? At some point, people need to become what I call a knowledgeable purchaser. And suddenly what happens here is you you have, as we say in Texas, the come to Jesus moment, okay? I'm now aware of my risk. I could lose a lot. This could blindside my company and send me into chapter 11. I need to manage it, and I need to figure out a way to mitigate it. That's the guy or, or gal that we want putting this, this particular program together. Yeah, no, totally makes sense. Well, so if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do okay. that? Okay. I only have a cell phone now. I haven't had a landline in years. And with my cell phone, I control the world. My number is 832-330-4101. You can find me on the web, Stewart at hailstewartlaw.com. Also, on my website, and there's a link to a free book, Captive Insurance and Planning, which I'll happily send you. Great. Yeah, we'll make sure to link that. And then people can find you on LinkedIn as well, right? Yes, I'm on LinkedIn. And in fact, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I, I typically do a short video every day on insurance, on alternate risk management, that type of stuff. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And on the next episode, you and I are going to chat a little bit more about kind of some of the gaps I'm seeing in oil and gas coverage. So thanks so much. Thank you. If you guys could do me a favor and like, 
leave a review for this podcast. That's the best way for us to get exposure and let other people discover how much fun we can have reviewing insurance and risk management issues. Hey, it's Julie here, and I have a few OGGN announcements before heading into the events on deck. Street team, we are still taking volunteers for our street team. We're only asking for an hour of your time per week in exchange for perks such as free entry to our happy hours, shirts, networking with other young professionals in our group. The group is within Facebook, but you do not have to have a Facebook to join. Just send me an email. The link will be in the show notes, and I can get you started. Our happy hours. We are actually moving to quarterly happy hours rather than monthly. So our next Houston happy hour, as well as Midland, will be in August or September. Be on the lookout for that date. You'll get an invite if you're on the list. If not, you can sign up on the list below. And then we are launching another happy hour in Denver in August. So if you're interested in that one, the link is in the show notes as well to be notified. We don't have a date or details for that yet, but they're coming up. Okay, now on to the events on deck. We have Golf for Good on June 11th, 2019 in Houston, Texas. All proceeds go to help Redeemed Ministries with our long-term recovery program and safe house to help victims of human trafficking become survivors. So mark your calendars and be ready to golf for good with Redeemed and our organizers, Global SEM Energy and Red M. For more information on how to sponsor or register, just click the link in the show notes. Data-Driven Drilling and Production Conference is June 11th through 12th in Houston, Texas. This is where Silicon Valley meets oil and gas. Register at the link in our show notes below. The Energy and Data Conference is June 17th through 19th in Austin, Texas. This forward-looking conference will include the latest in digital transformation trends as they relate to the energy sectors with topics such as machine learning and data management storage, oil and gas development and drilling production, and more. Link down below. Energy Exposition is June 26th through 27th in Gillette, Wyoming. The Energy Exposition is for those who would like to know more about procedures, technology, safety, environmental practices, and equipment used in the oil and gas industry. And again, the link is in our show notes. Argentina Oil and Gas and Energy Summit 2019 is on July 10th and 11th in Buenos Aires. This summit's actually the first and only official event for the Argentinian oil and gas and energy industries. It will present a unique platform for networking that will bring together existing and future operators in the oil and gas industry in Argentina and Latin America. Next up is the 2019 IPANM annual meeting that Mark, Jake, and Paige will actually be speaking at. This will be July 24th through 26th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this year's theme is Addressing Operator Needs in 2019. And next up is Desk and Derek Fort Worth second annual shoot for the future clay shoot. This clay shoot will be on July 26th in Decatur, Texas. And then last but not least, Summer Nape. This is going to be August 21st and 22nd. 
where the deals happen. 